Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome everyone and thanks for downloading another episode of the podcast. Today we have a third civilian guest, Andy Kirkpatrick, described by John Humphreys as the Randolph Fines of British climbing. He's a professional mountaineer, award-winning writer, filmmaker and host of the Cycle Vertigo podcast. Andy's climbed all over the world but is used as an expert in big wall climbing, having summited El Capitan over 30 times, including five solo ascents and two one-day ascents. He was kind enough to email and tell us how much he enjoyed the pod, and it got us thinking how much small unit dismounted soldiering and climbing had in common. Both involve highly trained individuals, capable of operating equally well on their own or as part of a team. There is also a need for focused training, the honing of skills, an obsession with gear, great thoughts in inaccessible parts of the world, and the discomfort of wet and dry drills before getting in or out of a sleeping bag. Andy did point out to me the main difference between climbers and soldiers is that other people are trying to kill soldiers and climbers are trying to kill themselves. Sadly, there's another area of similarity and he's lost a number of friends in the mountains over the years. I saw him speaking Hull some time back and thought he'd make a great guest and if you want to catch him live, he's touring the UK in a variety of theatres and locations throughout October and November and it's a fantastic night out. Details available on his website, www.andy-kirkpatrick.com. Oh, thanks. It's, yeah, it's great to be here. I, I'm, I'm already aware there'll be loads of soldiers who'll be, like, switching off. Because <laughs> uh, I wanted to do some work for the for the military, and uh, it was about people leaving, transitioning out of the military. And they said that the first thing you got to do is stop calling people civilians or civvies. Like, my brother's in the RAF now. He's another lifer. Like, my dad and my brother and my granddad were all lifers in the RAF. In, in the military. And um, so he, I, I love this thing where he says, is it, in the, is it if you're a soldier, you should never be like, is it like two paces from your rifle or something? Yeah. And yeah. in the RAF, he's like, never, never be two paces from a, from a chair. So, <laughs> um, Checking, so, don't so dig it. So my dad was in the Air Force. And uh, he eventually got into, um, uh, I don't know how, but he eventually got into 
he was in Tawin uh, in Mid Wales where they had this um, uh, um, yeah, what do they call it? Not multi multi service, but you had like the army, the navy, oh, tri service, and the air force. Yeah, tri service kind of outward bound kind of camp there in Tawin. And so he he was he got into all that kind of stuff um, and ended up in that mountain rescue, like RF mountain rescue, like and ended up being like a team leader in in the mountain rescue and uh, had, a, had had a very interesting. You know, he basically joined the military exactly the right time, like never right at the end of his life, right at the end of his career, he entered Bosnia he had to teach you know, how to rescue people if, if lorries went over the edge of cliffs and things. But he basically, he saw like one bullet hole in, one, in, his, whole, in his whole career in the, in the Air Force. <laughs> and then um, my brother joined when he, again, when he was like 18, 19, and went in and ended up being um, just, he went in and basically went off to Sierra Leone and then he went off to like, Af- you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, all these, his, He's been like he's like forty something. He's been uh, a lord. He's a lord master. He was a lord master, but basically involved in like nonstop kind of war fighting all his all his life. So um, was he on Chinook? So, yeah. so, but I when I was again when I was eighteen, I went. He was on a, a hex and then like right. C seventeens. So when when I was uh, so when I was eighteen, I did the same thing. I went down to I wanted to be I wanted to join the Marines because I was in from a from a dad. I was interested in. The you know outdoors and that kind of stuff and the marines seemed like the one you you join if you're into that kind of thing so I went down to the navy recruiting place in Hull and I kind of went in there and um, also they said it was okay and then I said I was going to move to London because my girlfriend at the time was moving to London and he said oh when you get to London go, just do it down there like don't, don't start here just go down there so I, I moved to London and uh, never 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 went back so I always I always. I always kind of regret it in a way. Like I have got that weird, um, you know. Like if you if you met Mick Jagger and you're like, oh yeah, I used to be in a band, you know. Like you know when you meet soldiers, or there's always that like, oh I would, you know, you don't you, you never say it like, oh I I I once went down to become a soldier, but I, I didn't go through with it. So, <laughs> but do you, um, do you think your own personality would have suited the the Marines? I'm very I'm very chaotic and scruffy, so I might have made it, if I'd made it through through the the you know. The, all the ironing, then um, <laughs> you know, then, may, then maybe I, I probably would have been quite good in, um, like, in some kind of special forces unit. Because I'm, I'm very good at just, uh, just like laying in a hedge or something. Like, I remember my dad telling me this. He was like, "Oh, the thing about the SAS, what they really want is someone who can just lay in a hedge. You know, they don't want someone who can, you know, do like a roundhouse kick, and uh, you know, they don't want someone who can lay in hedges." So I'm like, "God." Oh. <laughs> so um but actually to to reverse I went so when I was when I was six so so when I was a kid we moved around living like Sardinia and you know did like the classic you know moving around all these kind of bases like part of NATO and everything else then when when I was six my parents like divorced and for some reason I was living in like this idyllic you know like north Wales, you know Wales with the you know mountains and everything else and uh anyway I got moved to Hull where my mum was from originally, and uh, ended up living in a block of flats in Hull. Like these, they call them the Misery Masonettes, and they're all, they've all been knocked down now. But they were pretty, they're pretty grim. And they, they, she got this council house, with those council flat, really quickly because the previous tenant committed suicide. I don't think anyone wanted to live in the live in there. Um, I always, I always joke that Amateurville Horror had come out at the same sort of time, so people were, you know, aware, wary of ghosts and things. <laughs> so we so we moved into this council house, council flat, and it was you know pretty um 
the sh- the shock to my system. I don't think I ever I ever got over it. Like it wasn't the sh- the shock of your mum and dad splitting up is pretty is pretty bad. But I think the shock of being transported from mid Wales or you know to, from Wales to live in this council, you know, with like a lift that stinks of piss and the you know people sniffing glue in the stairs and all that kind of stuff. It was. It was kind of, uh, you know, just it wasn't it wasn't good. But I kind of, you kind of adapt, and so it's kind of funny. I often say later on in life, you know, growing up in this place where it was very, very grim, you know, like the wallpaper would come off the walls because it was damp, and and all of those kind of things. It was pretty cold. You get you get dressed in bed because it was cold. Um, it was really good training for later on in life of being going to like places where it's minus fifty and things. And, <laughs> general grimness and and i used to joke like it was basically like the the eastern europeans are very good mountaineers are very very tough they'll go and climb everest in winter and do all do these really really tough things i often joked that i had this eastern european um upbringing but then one day i met some guy some polish guys like actually the we have very good central heating in poland we have very <laughs> thick windows much thicker than your windows so it turns out it was there uh, it was just a very whole whole kind of training so whole super flat as well. So didn't really have any uh, anywhere to any sort of outdoor kind of element there. It's like the flattest places, apart from Lincolnshire, it's pretty flat. In fact, it's kind of an extension of Lincolnshire, basically. Hull. Yeah. So we're advertising Hull now. Oh, like the, the... the next mountaineering training area for um, uh, adverse and uh, austere location. I'm not sure the people of Hull might be appreciating is... their uh, city of culture. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, two two really good mountaineers have come out of Hull. A guy called John Redhead and a guy called uh, um, who's the other guy, um, Dick Renshaw. So he's joked that I'm the third best third best climber in Hull. So it's uh, kind of weird. Uh, but they, I I used to have this story that when I was ten, they built the Humber Bridge. The Humber Bridge was was built, and it was just this amazing. You know, cause it's so flat. There's this amazing object just coming out of the ground. And the the problem with the whole Humber Bridge was. It joined two places nobody wanted to go, so it was a complete um, kind of white elephant. But it was, but it the, a lot of the things I ended up climbing in my life when I when I think back to the Humber Bridge, they're very very similar. That you know, this idea, just the verticality of the bridge of this, the the, um, the the two pylon things on either end. You know, it was just you know, this comes straight out of the ground. And when you go and climb to El Capitan in Yosemite. It's exactly the same. There's no foothills or anything. It just comes straight out of the ground. This thousand meter piece of granite. So um, I think the Humber Bridge maybe maybe it's two hundred meters high, but it just seems really, really high. So, um, uh, school. I wasn't very good at school. I wasn't very good at. I couldn't read very. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I couldn't tie my shoelaces, and uh, I kind of really struggled at, at school. And I was basically like a remedial. A remedial child or re- they call it retarded in those days but i was basically in all the in all the classes where all the kids were going crazy and it was there was no there's no nothing going on basically <laughs> so um and uh it's kind of, again it's kind of weird that i couldn't tie my shoelaces and then you end up having a job where you have to like you know tie, your life depends on how well together. you can tie knots and work with rope <laughs> yeah just a slow a slow learner i think so it is so um i ended up leaving school uh, didn't have any qualifications. Just went on the went on the doll and didn't go to didn't didn't do any further edu- further education. Like I remember, like kids were like, "Why why are you going to do your A levels? You just be overqualified." And it's you know it's so it's so weird when you have your own kids 
you know that kind of uh, that kind of mentality. I remember reading one of your books or or on your website where you you said something about um, your background at the time. You you know your kids from your school weren't encouraged to go on to further education, or you know university wasn't for the likes of you. And that rang a bell with me as well from from my school because back in the day, same sort of thing. You know, you just going to university just wasn't a thing. Yeah, it's like a real. It's a real. Uh... Like I, I often like now now I'm older in life I can look back and I realize that a lot of a lot of the barriers um are kind of self-imposed or imposed by your own group you know if you're working class you know there's I guess in the past you had like the grammar school system and you were kind of forced to you know to, to go into that kind of streamed away from the people you grew up with but um yeah like it was uh yeah like all those kind of things like chips on your shoulder and envy and you know every, everyone's posher than you and everyone's got more money than you and and stuff like that it's um it's very detrimental really to to, to progressing from that you know from that kind of st- that place like I was living I was like living in a squat I was I was getting paid you know I was getting like 27 quid a week on the dole but um you know that could have that could have like I've met people who are now who I knew were on the dole in 1990 something who were still on the dole or they just yeah. call it something else you get like you become you become self-employed and you sell like nuts and bolts on eBay but you're basically still on the dole you've never had a job all your life so it's so it's kind of it's, it's very uh d- depressing but um but anyway, I had this, I had this, I had this girlfriend, and uh, she was at Hull University, so she was like much, you know, she's like clever. So you, you know, it's that thing you have to grab, grab someone who's who's rising, and you can, you know, get yourself out of there. So, she, so we moved, moved to London. She wanted to get like a proper job, and I ended up applying because I had this kind of outdoor experience. I ended up applying. I saw this advert for survival aids. Like I'm sure you're all uh, had many survival agent catalogs in your, in the in the past. So I uh, so I had um, I applied for this job in Euston Station and I turned up for the interview. And the manager, I think he used to work at Marks and Spencers. I don't think he really knew anything about the uh, about the outdoors. And uh, went down to this little tiny room. And he's and he was so the interview was like, right then, you're in the jungle. What do you need? And I'm like, um, a hammock. And he went, you've got the job. So. so that, <laughs> So I'd read all those like Lofty Wiseman, you know, Lofty Wiseman books. It all it all came in handy. So yeah, so I started working at Survival Aids, and it was a, it was a very interesting education. In um, you probably you probably would have maybe that's why I didn't go and join the Marines working at Survival Aids because it was during the the war in Yugoslavia. So you had you had all these people coming through, like British soldiers. You had um, uh, I remember once like the the French Foreign Legion all turned up. One day, wanting to buy loads of gear, you had like reporters from the BBC and TV coming through. You had mercenary people coming through or going out there to do whatever. So you just had all these um, odd characters coming through this uh, through this shop. So, um, so anyway, so but that was kind of an introduction to uh, actually kind of making a living out of some kind of interest in the outdoors. I eventually, I eventually moved back to Hull, and then someone. Buffalo, the guy Hamish who designed like the Buffalo shirt, you know the Mar- uh, super oh the Pertex and uh, fiber pile. Like, yeah. yeah, so 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 Hamish Hamish had got to know him because um, really as a real gear nerd, you know, like I just thought like Buffalo was the best thing ever, and he got me this job um, in the Peak District. Uh, so I, I ended up getting this job. I had to cycle like twenty four miles a day, like over this big mountain over the from Sheffield over the hill down into the Peak District. So I did that for a year and then eventually kind of ended up, but just ended up like next few years, just worked in, until I was 30, just worked in, in outdoor shop, which is, uh, it's kind of better than being on the dole, but you're still on, you know, probably less than minimum wage on like eight and a half grand a year or something. You're just, 
you're just kind of getting by. But that didn't really that didn't really matter because you know through working in this uh, these shops, I ended up like meeting all these interesting people who were climbers. And uh, I'd read this article about climbing in the Alps in the winter time when I was working in, a, in another shop. You just sounds like amazing. There's nobody there. It's kind of extreme or everything else. And I was just like, uh, I was like, Christ, that sounds amazing. Just, go, you know, and I, I realized you get the bus from Sheffield for £99 all the way to Chamonix in the in the French Alps. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'll give my job up and I'll just go over there. I only went for two weeks. So it was, it was like stupid giving my job up. But anyway, so, so I went over, went over to Chamonix. So I had no experience in sort of mountaineering or whatever. And I went there with this friend friend of mine who also had he had a little bit more experience than I did but not very much and we just went there and we would we, how we survived I have no idea you know everybody everything was under snow no one was climbing everyone was skiing you got no money and everyone's like why don't you go skiing and you're like I haven't got any money you're like every gun skiing just costs money basically and we just slept in the woods you know the, all the campsites were under snow you couldn't go camping so we just slept in the woods it was had very, you very done big. any Scottish winter climb at this point Andy or was this the very first time you had sort of uh, any sort of winter climbing I done I done a very little bit. So my dad, so I don't, I'd see my dad like occasionally because he was in the mountain rescue. Sometimes, as kids, we we would he would like pick us up and we'd go out uh, for the week. You know, the mountain rescue, the Irish mountain rescue, like every, like every like three weekends a month, they would basically go to Lake District or whatever, and they do like training, which would actually mean that we just go climbing and walking. So so I had a bit of experience with going with them and. But very kind of minimal, really. Uh, you know, you you didn't like. I know people who went ice climbing, and that you know, the, the like an ice screw that you screw into the ice to protect yourself. Like they left the rubber stoppers on the end because they didn't know what they were for, and you know they wouldn't go into the ice because they had the stoppers on the end. And I wasn't it wasn't that bad, but I was I was pretty green, really. But I had this amazing um, ambition. Like it was only years later when someone said to me, "Like you, you're the most ambitious person I've ever met in my life." It was a bit like when someone says you're charming. You know, like oh, you can always chat up a woman because you're so charming. You're like, am I? Oh, great! I've, I've gone and chat up some more women. I didn't know I was. So it was a so. But I, I obviously, looking back, I had this amazing ambition but what it what it really was was desperation you know if you go to africa you know everyone's hustling everyone's everyone's got like two jobs and everyone's trying to make money because they have to they have no they have no nothing to fall back on you know you have to you have to feed yourself that day same in same in most places in the world and that's what that's what i had basically i had a, a crap job i had no nothing no qualifications i had no you know like you know, there, was, there wasn't there wasn't was no proper job for me to have. That was the, that was the best I thought I could have, I could get really. So um, I just threw pro- my... sorry, Andy. Can I just interrupt? Is it probably to say back in the eighties and nineties? Sort of nowadays, you can go on the internet and you can book a winter climbing course in Scotland. But I presume there wasn't a lot of that around there. And, and by dint of that, you were you did have to be self taught. The pro- the problem there was there was more of a um, apprenticeship scheme in a way that like you you know you would meet like I want I once had the you know I joined a climbing club when I lived in Hull and you know there were good, two guys who went up to Scotland and we uh, you know drove all the way to Scotland on a Friday night and then we walked up to the bottom of the climb and then they were like where's your helmet and like I don't have one they're like oh you can't go climbing and you have to go for a walk instead and they just sent me off so. There was um, there's uh, there was like a, a way of you know if you were keen and young and fit you know some older climber who was less fit and less keen but was still going climbing they'd be like 
I'll just take this lad, you know, or, or what, generally they would say, I'll take this lad and I'll train them up and then they can do all the hard stuff. And uh, that's how they would, you know, stay in. And then that person would eventually, you know, take on other climbers. And I, I've done the same, you know, you've I've climbed with so many people and a lot of them had no experience whatsoever. But you're just looking at the raw metal of the person, like this person can do it. Like it's not that difficult. So the way, the way, the probably where mountain, like, like climbing is a very middle class sport. Like it, in the past, it was what Tofts did. And after the Second World War, you had a lot of, uh, you know, like the, the working classes basically broke out of Manchester and Sheffield and Leeds and and there was and went to North Wales. And there's a real boom of like, you know, lots, lots of sec, like army surplus gear so people could kit themselves out for almost nothing. Uh, like my uncle was a salvage diver and he he basically did it using like a rebreather set from a submarine or something you know he was just just like on you know that's how he i don't know how he survived so but but i think slowly climbing changed into a very sort of middle class professionals you know most climbers you know they'll pretend they're poor but they're like an architect or a you know they're teachers or academics and things um so yeah so so the idea of going on a course like i read loads of books like i was really this amazing appetite for information and my dad i remember i once wanted to make i needed to make a harness out of webbing because you know i couldn't afford to buy a harness and instead of telling me how to do it over the phone he just bought a book and sent it to me and it showed you you know climbing techniques and I just you know so I was I was very good at um like, like when I was 19 I, I was finally discovered that my problem in life was I was dyslexic like really dyslexic like they're, they're giving you these two tests one to do with numbers one to do with like boxes something <laughs> spatial awareness and I got like 99% on the spatial awareness and like 16% on the on the numbers so it just meant I was like it was kind of really really you know you'd only ever seen one person you know all his life who was was had that kind of score so but but what it what i realized was uh with the dyslexia thing what i was actually very good at was looking at something very complicated and dismantling it down and then rebuilding it in a way like even when i was a little kid like someone would give me a model of a tank and i would just like smash it up and then i would be like trying to work out how it was put together you know and so in later on in life that's what i would do with climbing because there wasn't as much, there was no internet. So if you wanted to learn how to like solo a, a climb, you know, using rope, something else, which is very, very complicated, you would, uh, I would just turn up at the bottom. I would try and glean as much information as I could, which was very minimal, like, you know, two sides of an A4 sheet of paper in one book somewhere you'd have to find. But then you would try and just break it all down and trying to work out how you would do it. And, you know, rather than someone teaching you how to do it, you would just work out for yourself and I think I probably that partly came from a dad and like I was never particularly good at climbing but I was very keen and I and I uh I found a a kind of a kind of climbing which kind of suited me which was kind of kind of mountaineering where it's a lot of it's like psychological you just have to turn up and not come back down like a few people said to me like how do you climb El Capitan so El Capitan if anybody's ever seen that film Solo with Alex Honnold where he's free climbing up El Capitan so that's El Capitan in Yosemite and people be like how do you climb it because you know it's like so difficult I'm like well all you do is just start when things get difficult don't come back down and that's (laughs) it basically so which which actually is, is the opposite to how Honnold did it because when I was watching that I was quite he's very obsessive isn't he and that he would repeatedly go to some really difficult sections and then climb and climb and climb them till he could get it perfected and yeah he's quite meditative isn't he like he'll, he'll he said that he'd sit in his camper van at the bottom of the valley and go through the climb mentally do you do anything like that um I, I guess you 
I guess the old, the old, the longer you've been climbing, like the biggest, the biggest thing about climbing is the unknown. It's probably the same in the military. Like, what's it going to be like the first time I get into like a firefight or something? Or what's it going to be like, you know, jumping off a helicopter when someone's might be firing at us or whatever? Like, what's the what's the sound of a thousand pound bomb going to be? And how you know, how will I feel it in my lungs? And all these kind of unknowns. It's like, what's it like to be in an avalanche? Like, like, you know, what's it like to fall? 150 feet you know what all these um all you know what's minus 50 feel like what's it like to sleep in minus 50 for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks like when my hands fall off but once once you start doing those kind of things you're like well it wasn't it wasn't that bad it wasn't you know like falling that far it was over so quickly you know as long as i didn't hit the ground or um you know even like people having accidents like people there's, there's so many things like i was i was climbing in kenya and the guy i was with broke his leg and uh, he's basically standing on a huge boulder and the boulder kind of fell over on the edge of a cliff. And luckily, instead of going over the edge of the cliff, he kind of landed on a ledge. And I kind of ran down to him and he kind of uh, he kind of sat up because he was kind of embarrassed. I don't know if it's the same in the military. If someone gets shot, they feel embarrassed. But classic thing for climbers, they fall off, they have an accident. They try to get straight up and start trying to climb again, which is the worst thing you can do because you're probably going to fall off again if you've not got a broken back or something. Anyways, he, he's, he tried to get up. I'm like, I'm like, don't move. Stay where you are. And he's like, I think I'm all right. And then he just fainted because <laughs> his leg was broken. <laughs> and um, but you, when when you're reading books about first aid, you know, about an accident, no one tells you that, you know. But so in your mind, you've read all this book about first aid. And you're like going through, like, I've told him not to move, blah, blah, blah. But then you're like, like, I'm on the side of this mountain in northern Kenya. There's no mountain rescue. There's no chance of any helicopters coming. Now what do I do? Like, that wasn't that wasn't in the book. So then, then you're into the unknown of, um, now what do I do? Like, you know, you're on your own, basically. And I think we live in a world where so many people are accredited and badged and qualified. and But their experience is in such a narrow confined you know like this is what you do and there's there's so little uh, you know if you're the one who said what happens if your client just takes his harness off what if what if what if your heart what if your client wants to commit suicide and you're up this mountain takes his harness off and he wants to jump off what do you think i should do you know and it's like don't, don't you know that's not important right now that's not going to happen and like I, I once had this uh, i once had breakfast with this guy who was in the sas and he was he was on standby for the for the olympics in london he was telling me the story that they were all lined up at this door to, like, you know, go through this door in the killing house, whatever it's called. And, the you know, if you think about the training of those guys standing in that door, like, I don't know how often they, they rotate in and out of that, you know, that part of the SAS. But, you know, that, that training is built on the on the backs of, like, tens of thousands, maybe, of, you know, f- you know 40 years of experience and what to do. And they're all standing there, and all of a sudden the door just opened by itself. Like there was a draft of wind and the door opened by itself and no one knew what to do. Like, no one had ever said, what, what happens if the door just opens by itself as a ghost or something? And for a second, like everyone froze. No one knew what to do. And then so then then something kicked in. It was like, just fucking go through the door. You're like, I bet just go through the door. So um, so so that happens a lot in, in climbing that you can read all these books and everything else, but... It's only by going out and doing it that you see all these things that the things you think are going to be really bad and not are not so bad as you think they're going to be. And the things that you don't really like you're going to get killed or have a bad outcome from something really, really small that you never even no one ever talked about. Like a friend of mine 
they skied across Antarctica and they're all by themselves. And although you have very good um, safety protocols in Antarctica, you have to contact someone every day on the on your satellite phone to tell them you, you're okay. And if you don't contact, maybe after two days, they will come and pick you up and you can't refuse. You have to be picked out. And this trip maybe cost them like 200 grand, you know, all this sponsorship money to go across Antarctica. And all their lighters stopped working. And all they had was like one box of matches. And they had enough matches for one, like two a day for like two months or something. So basically, you know, if, if those matches got damp or something happened to them, they, they'd be screwed. They'd have to get rescued. All that, all that for one box of matches. And I was like, why didn't you have like a flint and steel? Like that, that would work underwater, basically. And like, what's a flint and steel? So it's, yeah. those, um, it's those little tiny details. It's not falling in a crevasse in Antarctica or a you know, thousand-mile wind. Even the even you know the guy who died, the British guy in Antarctica, you know, it was it's just like a you know a little infection in your leg, or a, an infection in your body that kind of spreads, or a blister, or um, like like skin rubbing together. I'm showing the military, you know, the number of soldiers who are like made, you know, they can't they can't operate because their 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 legs of the skins moved, moved you know rubbed together in the in their thighs or whatever. But you know, no one would probably ever think about that. They'd be thinking about something, you know, much more extreme. Yeah, it's the know. basics. I mean, it's interesting you say that. And I don't know if it happens in the world of climbing, but something Kevin and I have touched on. I remember back in the 90s when GPS started coming in, you found that people were investing hundreds of pounds at a time in a GPS, handheld GPS. And eventually, you know, if the GPS went down, the, the map reading skills had faded. So mm. it's very similar to that thing you're talking about, you know, Reliant on high tech and a box of matches would actually do the trick. Yeah, yeah, te- yeah. Technology, and you have so much information. Like when the first time we ever went to Patagonia, which is down at the bottom of Argentina, we went there in the winter time, and basically no one had ever really, you know, maybe maybe a few people had been there in winter. And there was one article in a New Zealand climbing magazine that we had to sort of get hold of and get sent to the UK to read. You know, read like a five-page article about climbing in Patagonia in winter. But there was there wasn't any maps because the Argentinians had all the maps, you know, because it was on the border with Chile. They didn't want anyone having a map, and you had like a a line drawing, you know, like a sticking stick man line drawing of this is this mountain. There's a ridge here. That's another mountain there. And you turn up there, you know, there's no booking your accommodation. You know, you you turn up there, and they're like in this village, you know, 120 kilometers from where you're going. They're like. You can't go there. Like there's no the roads covered in snow. Like no one, you know, you cannot get. A, you know, you have to get a taxi, and you have to persuade them to drive you there. And you arrive there, and everything's closed. Everyone's gone. You know, it's so there was this kind of you know that you're having. You're always constantly having to improvise and adapt everything. Uh, you know, to, to all these situations where now you know you, you could book your accommodation. You know, your Airbnb like at the bottom of the mountain, and you could be looking at a webcam that we're showing you what the conditions are like, and someone could be emailing you to your um, in-reach satellite little you know dongle on your in your pocket, telling you what the the weather's doing, and so it's millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Has that taken some of the fun out of it in your eyes? Well, it allows, allows people to perform at much higher, higher level because they know that, you know, by one o'clock, the weather's going to get bad. And so they can just, they can, they can just do it. And also there's, it's a, it's professionalized. So, you know, so Alex Honnold has enough income that he can just spend the whole year just trying to climb this one route and, you know, do this amazing groundbreaking thing where before, you know, people wouldn't be able to to do that. We'd eventually have to go and, you know, do some work or, you know, they're, they'd be living. So they'd be living on, um, you know, some, some people used, used to live in Yosemite. They would just live on bran. They would just buy a big bag of bran and that's all they would, they would eat. So they'd be so malnourished, they wouldn't be able to do anything. So, so yeah, so it does, it does, it does change it. And you don't want to be one of these like old farts who's like, oh, when I started climbing, we had wooden, you know, wooden carabiners or something. But it does, uh, it's the same, but it's kind of, it's kind of different, really. It's become uh, more democratic in some ways, I suppose, as you said. It lets, uh, probably opens it up a little bit to a, a wider spectrum of people. Yeah, it has, like, definitely, like, the, the, the grade, you know, the grade level for for climbers is is constantly getting higher and higher. Less so in mountaineering. Like the, the number of people interested in mountaineering is is steadily decreasing because I think because we live in such a kind of risk averse society. You know, you know, people can't. It's too. It's kind of the more the, the more risk averse you become, the more exposure you are to risk because you can't evaluate it properly. Like my, like I've got like a a nine-year-old, nine, no, nine-month-year-old baby here. And uh, from the moment he could basically move around, he he would go up and down the stairs. I would there, we'd be there behind him. He would go up and down the stairs. And even as where we live, he's kind of famous because he can go up the slides, all the three slides in the park. He's only a tiny baby, but he can climb up the slide and he can slide back down again. And there's two-year-olds who can't do that. But, like, you know, the morning you laid in bed and the stair gate was left open, you could hear this noise on the stairs. And you go around and your child is like climbs all the way up the stairs by themselves with no adult supervision. Like that, you know, someone's that's that's why you have to train kids to be able to, like, you know, climb stairs by themselves without an adult standing behind them. And I think that's the same in the rest of society. I think people just don't really understand risk. Like I I hate cycling because I just think it's too dangerous. You know, so people are like, what do you mean? Like I've, I'll, I'll cycle down the path, you know, I won't cycle on the road. People are like, what do you mean? You do all this crazy stuff. You solo, you know, solo all this kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, but I haven't got like a massive like bus on my ass <laughs> when I'm soloing. So, and you can have a very people have a very militant attitude sometimes. Well, it's my right to be. I don't want to get upset cyclists here, you know. But it's like it's my right to be on this road, and like it, it doesn't matter when you're crushed under a bus, yeah. you know. And uh, and. Uh, to me, it's just not worth the risk of the constant exposure. Uh, like I, I climbed El Cap with my daughter when she was 13. And, uh, you know, people were like, we, like it ended up being a bit of a, uh, a drama because we made this program for BBC TV. I think it was called My Life. And the idea was it was kids who were having this something in their life that was like a transformatory. Like they would, one of them would do like a Tough Mudder 
assault course. One would build, do, make their own vegetables or something. And then there was this one where this like 13 year old like climbs up El Capitan, like, you know, five, <laughs> five days, you know, on this overhanging big wall. And we had a guy with us, Aldo Kane, who's quite well known now, who's like an ex Royal Marine. And, you know, he was like, I, I, I'm sure you'll admit it, he was like crapping himself. You know, it's like he was, he was really out of his comfort zone. And here was this like 13 year old kid who was just, climbing up the rope, sleeping, you know, tied to the edge of this, on the, on the side of this mountain. And people would say, like, like what what will you do if she gets halfway up and she can't do it? I'm like, well, she just have to do it. Like, there's there's no we'll halfway up. Yeah, so, and I think she she kind of knew, she kind of knew that. And I think it's that um, there's no, there's no alternative. Like, when, you know, when you meet an African and you say, like, oh, what's the, um, you know, how's your uh, mental health? You know, they're like, what? Like, what, you know, how's your mental health? And like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, you're living like complete crap all year. Like, you know, like, you know, how how is you, you get depressed? It's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And it's that, it's that ability to, you know, some kids, the classic thing is when you go to the park is when you, you know, put a child on the, on the roundabout and you start getting the roundabout going faster and faster and faster and faster. And you just see the kids like flying off. Because I've never been on a roundabout that's going fast, you know. The parents would be like, "Oh, can you stop the roundabout? Like, t- I've got to get Timmy off." And he's like, he's, "He's, you know, he's terrified." And maybe it's a good thing. But I think, I think, it- I think you've got to train people. And, and you touched on physical and mental resilience there, Andy. And I think they're both important requirements for soldiers and mountaineers. And you, you just talked about some of the extreme situations you've been in. So, how would you prepare yourself for those extreme environments that you're operating in? I, again, I think that the older you, the older you get. Um, like I'm really, I'm really big fan of that book. Like I've read loads of books about the military because I'm like a military nerd. Is it who's it? Who's the guy? Uh, no mean soldier. The um, is it thingy? Oh, Peter John McAleese. McAleese. Like he just, like he's they just made this documentary, haven't they, about him and Pablo Escobar or something? But he, he's, he's a good example of one of these. You know, it's basically a killer. You know, he's like a killer, and he's but he's been doing it so long. You could just like rock up like totally overweight and start killing people. You know, but it's that. Um, you know, when you're younger, you know, you have to be like really fit and really strong. And this because your fitness and your strength is like a filler in for that kind of inner confidence of like, I'll just be able to do it. You know, I'll be able to get I'll be able to get by. And um, like I often I often make this analogy that you might, you know, physical physical training like a lot. I'm really I'm very interested in like strength training but only as a way of like not getting injured, but not necessarily being strong enough to to kind of do it because you often meet people who are like Olympic grade athletes, but they just don't have, they just can't sustain it for, for a very, for very long. So they'll start. I did a climb with somebody who was, you know, a credible, uh, credibly fit guy, but within like one day, he was like, he was burning his ketones or raise. Like he had the most horrendous breath, you know, where I could probably go, like I'd, we went to try and climb uh, Denali in winter. That was the last big trip I did 2019. And we end up having no food for like seven days at the end because we couldn't get picked up at the end. And I just laid in the tent for like seven days and have any food really at all. We had some we had some horrible um, American uh, porridge. I couldn't eat it. It's too horrible. I could, it just made me feel ill. So um, you know, but I can I could do that. You know, I can just just you know just um just kind of get by. Where someone who's like super super fit, they wouldn't be able to do it. I don't think. And uh, so I have this thing about the like bin man fitness. Like you'll never see like a bin man or bin person now, you know, like warming up, like doing stretching and, uh, you know, or you never see like builders, do you? Like builders like doing loads of like stretching and picking up loads of bricks and just like starting with like one brick and then two bricks until they start. And there's a, there's the longer you do something, 
you realize that a lot of that stuff isn't that important. But at the same time, you have a, you know, like you have, I don't, it's not aging athlete syndrome, but you have something where you think you don't realize how strong you are because you're always doing it. But if you like with, with the COVID, because I didn't do anything for like a year or something, I didn't do a lot. Like a, there was like a kettlebell in our, in our house and I just kind of picked up and swung it a few times. And I was just the next day, I was like, oh my God, like, I think I must have been like, you know, hit by a car or something. Because I'd never really appreciated that you just had this kind of natural strength. Like I can't, like at one time I wouldn't have been able to do a, like a squat with a you know like fifty kilos. I wanted to do a squat with fifty kilos on my back, but at the same time I managed to like piggyback someone a thousand meters down off a mountain who weighed seventy five kilos. There's that kind of. I know the military are, they seem to be looking at this a lot now about how to make soldier strong you know and and not be injured and everything else yeah there's a massive push on that now and they're using a lot more uh, different methods of training a lot of the british army used to just focus on running and now it's yeah. about that core fitness and all-round fitness that, that as you alluded it, to prevents injury it's like a job fitness i think you've alluded to a little bit when you're about builders and all the rest of it like a something worse than the mines he can do he can be down the mine eight ten hours a day chipping away doing the work doesn't get tired it just becomes a, the way it operates and, and then if i went down there yeah if i went down there and did it i'd be exhausted by the first hour because i just haven't built that resilience and also it's just something there is a mental toughness to that sort of physical work in, in, in a normal day you just become you know if you're laying bricks all day you just lay bricks and you just don't think about the tiredness and stuff it just becomes built in yeah it's like you just progress it's a bit, a bit like walking long distances like if you you just like put one foot in front of the other and you can you can have had no food for a long time but yet you can just keep going at a certain speed and uh just you know you're almost like dropping down you know dead <laughs> well i think you think it's, it, it's been said before isn't it the, the, we give up a lot easier because the mental side gives up before the physical side gives up on the human being we're just not as we forget how robust we can be and then people prove it all the time how robust a human being can be. But because we live in a, you know, we don't catch things. We go to the supermarket and catch our food in there, sort of thing. We we, we become let's say soft to a way. Yeah. And it's only when you're thrown back into that environment and you realise that actually you can live an austere life. You can live an arduous life. We, we are built for that. We just mentally but, but i think prepared. it takes a personality type as well because we've seen it on the podcast we've talked about selection courses and on most selection courses is actually quite a few people fail themselves they're not failed by failing a test or being failed by the instructors they're you know they're actually just mentally can't cope with it and do you see do you see that when you're doing these extreme claims Andy? few people just have got probably got the fitness and the skills but just fold because they can't cope oh yeah yeah like like a lot of people are going through life in search of a reason to fail in everything they do, really. And they'll always come up with, oh, we, they, like it was going to rain. or um, <laughs> So, but I think a lot of people are like going, like the, the language people use about themselves. Uh, like I went on a trip with someone and it was basically, you know, had like guy who climbed Everest and skied to the South Pole, guy who was Norwegian Special Forces, guy who was Norwegian Special Forces and base jumping superhero. And all the way down, and then there was like, woman who is you know nurse uh, who base jumps you know the the smallest lightest weakest person on this trip and i always i always would call her hardcore you know for the there for like two months i'd always call her hardcore and in the end she ended up like beating everybody she was the most hardcore of all those people 
and it's amazing how people just generally don't fold. You know, the the reason someone is this big, hunking, muscly special forces guy is maybe that that's a manifestation of some kind of weakness. Like he's trying to make up for something by being this big, strong guy who can do those pull-ups. Where this other person hasn't got anything to lose. Like they're they're basically the weakest person on the team. Generally, they, they seem to do really well. Like if you give them the opportunity, you know, like, and you don't have given an out, as in you're on this mountain, we have to get to the top. This is what you have to do, you know, and you can't you can't do anything else. They'll 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 do it basically. Where other people will suddenly say they're ill or they've got, you know, you know, they're they're not present there. They're too busy on social media. Like if you've ever gone on a trip with somebody, you'd always go on the social media on Instagram and see how many photographs there is of them and how many photographs there is of other people. And if every other photograph is of them, like taking photographs of themselves, you don't want to go well on a trip with those people. You know, if it's just if it's just people who are taking pictures of stuff around them, then that's a that's a better sign, really, because it's often those those little um, the little details or being interested in what other people are doing, like recognizing when someone is the weakest person, and the, or you know, it's very hard to like put people in their place because it's not a military, you know, no one's in charge really, but you sometimes have to maneuver people so they become aware of how weak they are, mm. and for other to maneuver other people to be aware of how strong they are, because if you allow someone who's really weak. To get into a position where they could kill somebody, then then that's on your that's your responsibility, you know. Because often people will will bluff that they're qualified or they've done this and done that, but they're just they're just not willing to to say actually I don't really know. I'm out of my compass comfort zone here. I don't actually know how to do this. Which I guess. So is would a- you so, sorry, Andy? Would you just say then you've just got a natural ability to endure hardship? It's just it's just from going from hole. It's just a natural. Uh, <laughs> Again, apologies yeah. to Hull. Yeah, no apologies. Yeah. It's, not, it's not Hull's fault. No, I, think, I think it is, um, but it's just the mo- it's just the more you do it, you more you you know, like when we're on, um, it's your it's just your attitude basically. You have to, you know, when when we were on when we tried to climb Denali, when we went up there, the rangers were basically we can't stop you going on this mountain, but we will we suggest like measuring you up for a coffin because we can't re- no there's no rescue and there's a fifty percent fatality rate of people who try and climb Denali in winter it's but it's kind of funny do you know what I mean it's kind of uh it's it's kind of, is that is that are they joking or do they really mean it and you just but you you don't oversell yourself you look you're like look I'm going to go on this mountain I'm just we're just going to go very very carefully you know we have no ambitions if we get to the top that's a bonus but to spend two months on a mount, on a whole mountain range with nobody else on there it would be it would be like super cool on it it's like it'd be great so Anyways, you go up there, and I was with my wife, who had no experience. She's climbed Kilimanjaro, but she hasn't got any experience with anything else like that. But you, but you create this bubble where you say, "This is what you have to do. You have to not take, you know, don't." You tell like through anecdotes. You tell the story of the woman who went to Antarctica. You know, someone had tied the guy lines on her tent together with a knot. You know, she took the glove off to untie the knot. You know, she got frostbite. So within one hour, she had frostbite. Had to go home to Chile. So you tell all these little stories, and people like, oh, actually, that you can get frostbite that quickly, and you, um, it's it's actually very very simple. You know, you you will be able to, you know, don't expose your cheeks, don't expose your nose, and just be, you know, always like watching other people. You know, don't leave that there because the wind will blow it away, or all, and all this kind of stuff. And often at the same time, you're making loads of mistakes yourself. Like our tent nearly blew away. 
because I kind of let go of it and the wind came. I had to chase after it down the down the mountain and things. So you're often making loads of stupid mistakes yourself, while at the same time trying to demonstrate that that you're in charge, you know what you're doing. And that's another level of like, look, I'm an incompetent idiot, but I have done this before, but I am human, you know, and um, what I said stands, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to do my best. <laughs> and, uh, and on that on that trip, we ended up getting, we ended up being stuck in a snow hall for like two weeks. And then we got high on the mountain. You know, basically the weather would get bad. We would we'd be living in the ground in a snow hall. It was minus 20. My watch only went down to minus 20, uh, but it was minus 20 inside the snow hall, which is supposed to be impossible. It should be 32 degrees in a snow hall. But anyway, it was pretty cold. And then um, we ended up getting to the very, very last camp. And we had a we had a stove system where you know the biggest thing the biggest danger again is not falling in a crevasse or or an avalanche or altitude sickness. It's probably carbon monoxide poisoning. So we had a, a system where the pan was elevated about uh, about five centimeters above above where it should be on the pan, and it created this kind of area where it would combust all the carbon monoxide. Is it carbon monoxide anyway? The, the one that kills you. And so we had, we we went up to the very last camp. Then, then you just got to the summit, uh, seventeen thousand feet, and we left behind the windshield, which was elevating the pan because we thought it would. It was just too heavy. We just tried to go very light to go on the last day, and we went up to the uh, this camp. We put the tent up, and it was super exposed. You know, you're like on the. You could be on a different planet up there. You know, t- I don't know what temperature was, but it's like very, very cold. I think it could be. You know, it's in the minus a hundreds if it, if with any kind of wind up there, and. Anyway, so I was boiling the water in the evening, like you're in your sleeping bag. You just got one arm out trying to boil this boil this thing. And suddenly my wife was like, Andy, Andy, like, help me or something. And she just felt like she was falling down a hole. And what was happening? She was getting carbon monoxide poisoning. And because uh, I'm from Hull, I don't, I don't suffer from that kind of stuff. You know, so. <laughs> anyway, so, so I was like, so I turned the stove off and I'm like wafting, you know, minus 50 air in her face. And she kind of come round. And then... Uh, I kind of just like we are so out here. We have we have got very little food left, got very little fuel left. We are we are still a week maybe from getting down to the bottom of this mountain. You just had carbon monoxide poisoning, and now we have to get up at two in the morning and start going for the summit like eleven hours round trip or whatever. It's like it's just not it's just not worth it. Like we've we've spent all this money, maybe fifteen grand maybe cost to do that one trip. You know that was like more than a year's wages. You know. And you're so close, and I'm and I'm just like, I got out of the tent. I started walking around the tent in the morning, like you know, like three in the morning. I was like, we have to go back down. We have to. We just have to go back down. And she's like, oh, but we're so close, and we we could we could do it. I'm like, no, we just have to go back down. That's it. Is that not? To... I mean, I watched the thing about Everest one time, and they were calling that summit fever, where people are not ready for it and just want to crack on. And that's yeah, they when, get when they're organised. Yeah, yeah. They have not. They have nothing. They have, people have, I've experienced it myself. They have like nothing left in the tank, and when you have nothing left in the tank, that's when your tank is called upon in a way. You know, you know that that's when something will happen. You know, you'll you'll be staggering down from the top, and someone will trip and fall and drag you down, and someone will break their leg, and you know, each little mistake compounds it. And already we were so far over the the line of what was acceptable just by going there. You're over the line to begin with, you know, because you can't just get you can't get any rescue, any form of rescue. So, so yeah, so we end up coming down. We end up coming down to the next camp down, and uh, suddenly, you know, you're, you're only a, 
you know a thousand foot lower but you feel like it feels completely different you know you feel you know and then the next day this wind came and you just knew if if you had been up there and the wind had come it would have been like survival it was survival really but you know but and, and you know yourself that maybe you could get through it but you know you don't want your wife to to die you don't want because she's a human although she's my wife she's still like a human being you'd have to face her parents and all that kind of stuff <laughs> it's very bad for your relationship if one of your, your wife die but, but we, we end up coming down the mountain and the rangers when we came back to ranger station they were like that was the most perfect expedition we've ever seen but sans the getting to the top <laughs> because you did it exactly how you should you should do it and that and that probably just comes from like I've had more failures and successes as a climber, but I'm 50 years old and I'm still doing it. We have so many climber friends who, you know, they they they, they didn't they didn't. So uh, I think that that's probably where the where your experience really shows is the ability to say it's not worth it. Like it's you know we can we can come back. But we've I think some- that I think that's a an inability that that's uh, sorry an ability that's lacking in the army at times and you look through to some of the wars that like in the Falklands war and the SES got caught out in Fortuna Glacier uh, a lot of that was because they pushed on when perhaps they didn't have the expertise to, to do that and actually didn't listen to some of the advice given out so I think maybe in the army it's harder to say no in those sort of situations is it safe? like I've done quite a lot of fil- uh, work on films and it's exactly the same on a film like no one can ever say no like if if you know if the director wants to do something, it's like okay, and then you know, but it's more, maybe it's impossible. Like, could we get a camera on top of that mountain over there? You know, it's like uh, yeah, yeah, we could do that. Yeah, we could you know get a helicopter to fly ten thousand miles to this remote place, and and eventually you have to sort of t- you know, like could we just put like a drone somewhere like on that? You know, so it's but I think that kind of failure is not an option. Is always like a recipe for for failure, basically. You know, you have to really. Um, negotiate your way up these kind of things and maybe you might might maybe it might take a while to you know to 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 go and climb denali in winter you know it might take and, and but the experience the experience of being up there like one of the best climbs i ever didn't do was i wanted to solo the troll wall in, in norway which is the highest wall in um, europe and it's an absolute it's just like death on a stick basically it's like a thousand meter high death on the stick you, you can't be rescued from there. I think it's the only place in Europe you can't be rescued. It's so loose. They don't want to fly any helicopters near it. Anyway, so I tried to solo that, and I got within. You know, I drove all the way from Sheffield all the way to, you know, middle of nowhere in nowhere. And, um, you know, so I've really committed a lot of energy and time to do this thing. And I got within, like, 15 metres of the, the top after 10 days. So I'd literally see the top of the climb. And I just could not find a belay to climb this last little bit. I just couldn't find a safe way of doing it. And, you know, kind of basically out of food, out of water, so I had to do something. And in the in that moment, I kind of banged my my camera in my pocket and it played this tiny bit of footage of my son emptying bottles of lemonade in the car park before I'd set off. So I took all these bottles of um, plastic bottles to fill with water on the on the climb. And, uh, and he's just saying like, dad, dad, get away, get away, like from the spray of the lemonade. And I just heard this little voice and I was like, that's good advice. I think I'll, I'll think I'll, I'll do that. So I ended up like abseiling two days, abseiling all the way back down this climb, went all the way home. But for me, that was like one of the best climbs ever. There was no summit, but the the experience of trying it and getting so close to the top, like to like to get to the summit is is often it's always down to climax because you're only 
then you have to get back down again. And getting back down is where you're probably going to get killed or something because it's, you know, you're going down and it's you're tired and you're, you know, you're rushing and everything else. So to almost get to the top is almost as good, if not better, than because it's such a it's such a noble failure um, to have tried so hard and given it everything, and then to have made the right decision is 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 better than just getting to the top and making the wrong decision. And well, he's, I suppose coming back alive is the right decision, isn't it? When you boil it down. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I end up going back again in the winter and doing it, but it was a dis- it was disappointing in a way to go back to go all that way to fifteen meters. It, what was the that was a that was a ridiculous thing to do. It was just like your ego, like you're just like I've got to do it. I've got to do. It. I'm so close. But that was not that kind of undermined the other experience, which was a much much purer. Really, um, like I guess I guess you, you hear this a lot with the whole Afghanistan thing. If all these people feel like they wasted, you know, they wasted all that their lives and their money and everything else. But that is what that's kind of what life's like. Really, it's not a it's not like a film. You know, it's, you, you aren't this character in a film. You're a, you're a you're a living human being, and you just have to accept that's what it that's how it is in a way. Yeah, I, have, I always have this story about being a kid where all these kids grab grabbed me, much older than me, and they held me down, and they all started spitting on me, like just spitting on me, spitting on me. So I was probably like seven years old or something, and just this this thing in my head, like you just got to take it, you just got to take it, like you can't you can't stop them, you just got to take it. It's, it's a very grim story, but I, I often reflect on that. Like, you just start to accept this is it. This is just move on. Just, uh, you know. <laughs> put, put it behind you. I find, mean, another, find another mountain to climb, basically. And do you think those childhood experiences have sort of driven you on like that? Yeah, well, a lot a lot of that um, feeling like you're like retarded, basically, as a kid and of having no real you know, like value, having no, nothing to, nothing, no voice, basically. No one's interested in you. You've got, you're not the kid who's being good at school or, you know, winning any prize or whatever. Like if you write, I wrote this short story in a mag, climbing magazine and I remember being at some, somewhere and this guy came up, he's like, oh, I'm a, I'm a lecturer, a university lecturer in English. And I often use that story as an example of something, a short story that's perfectly written. And I was like really like taken aback because it was like, that, that someone like me could write something like 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 that, but the um, the write the English or learning to write, learning to spell, all that kind of stuff is not that important. It's the it's the experience of living a, an interesting life gives you interesting things to write about. But the more you write, the more you realise that you don't need to do interesting things. Like a good writer could write about catching a bus. You know, there's 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 amazing things going on around us all the time. Like as my next door neighbours, they I think they think. They have very boring lives, but each one of them has an amazing story. To begin with, maybe they're doing crazy climbs and crazy expeditions where you were, you know, almost like someone, like my book, Psychovertical, someone said, like, the problem with this book is in every chapter you nearly die. And I'm like, I did. I did nearly die in every chapter. You know, like some people might make one of those chapters into a whole book, but I just put all of, all of them into one, you know, like 10 years of my life into one, into one book. But as you get older, you realize that, I don't need to. I don't need to do those things so much anymore. You know, I don't, I don't need to be constantly looking for some some death-defying. You know, because it is like an end game. Eventually, you are going to kill yourself. Yeah. You know, all all the people you've started with, they either you know they are now decrepit in some some form or other, or they got married or something, and um, or they uh, became mountain guides, which is almost as bad as dying. 
Um, <laughs> you just have people skiing all the time, you know, or they, or they died or, or whatever. So you you kind of you kind of it's a bit like base jumpers. Well, when I was in Norway, someone emailed me and said, "Do you want me to teach you how to base jump?" And I was like, I said, "No, I'll probably just kill myself and avoid all the all the training." You do see that with all these base jumpers when you talk to them, like who who taught you to base jump? Oh, this guy, and he's dead now. And like every single, almost every single person they know has 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 died base jumping, but yet they're kind of driven to keep because it's so amazing. It's so amazing to for that it's the reason, yeah. So it's like taking heroin or something, you know. It's like I never never had heroin, but someone told me it's fantastic. So how, Andy, so how are you, how are you now? When to stop? Well, <laughs> well or will wife, there never be a time you can stop? Well, my wife is always like, "Why do you go away on a trip? Why don't you go do something?" I'm like, "Why are you trying to?" Like you're trying to get rid of me, so um, no. I think you'll. I think like I have no intention of of ever retiring because I don't have any. I don't have a pension or anything. So you just got to keep keep doing it. But you, you do. I guess you do like adjust. You want more. You want something more out of it. You know. You want to have something. Like I say, I'm not. I'm not on social media. So I, I try to not make my life a performance. You know. Mm. I don't want to. I don't want to commodify my death in a way. Have come back and saying, "Look at this! I just did this, and yeah, look yeah. at me! I'm doing this." And like people say, "You're not, you're not, you're not only died fight for weeks. Like, what, what have you retired?" And like, "Oh yeah, I'll get back out there and do something." And trying to step back from that world of your identity being dependent on what you do, rather than who, rather than who you are, what you think, and everything else. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.